May it please the listeners. My name is Rich Schoenstein, and this is Law Brief. Today, I am joined by my litigation partner, Rich Lamuccio. Hello, Rich. Hey, Rich. <laughs> we we have a joke around here. There's there's like uh, there's like four Richards at the firm, and I'm always always saying that the collective noun is an embarrassment of riches. And so you have two of us today, and we're going to talk about a very old litigation topic, juries and jury service, particularly because there have been a number of high-profile trials that are either in progress or recently concluded. We had the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. We had the trial of the killers of Ahmad Arbery, the McMichaels. We have ongoing trials of Elizabeth Holmes and Ghislaine Maxwell. There was a trial just concluded of Jesse Smollett. There seems to be a lot of media attention to some very prominent jury trials. And that would be the thing that ties all of these cases together, right, Rich? They all involve juries comprised of people from the community who are called to decide these criminal and civil cases. And we want to talk about that a little bit, okay? So I guess, Rich, you know, here's a basic question for people. What is jury duty and when does it come up? Thanks, Rich. Jury duty is something that comes up pretty much every couple of years, depending on the jurisdiction you're located in. Jurors are selected generally from a voter registration list in their particular county where they reside. For me, for example, I live in Maplewood, New Jersey. And when I get called for jury duty, it is in Essex County Superior Court. When I lived in New York and I had the, the privilege of being called for jury duty, I was in Manhattan. So I was, would appear in New York County. And it is a process, you know, that I know a lot of people will get a jury summons in the mail and be, have a little bit of foreboding about it because of it's not exactly always a, a pleasant process, but it, it's an important process. So I get a summons in the mail. You have been selected for jury service starting December 15th. What happens next? Well, you'll get a date, you know, we'll, we'll do it first in pre-pandemic times. You'll get a date to appear at the courthouse where you will be put into a room with, you know, 100 to 200 of your most, you know, newest, closest friends and will be provided with instructions by the jury clerk. And, and I know in particular in Essex County, where I've most recently had to serve, the jury clerks are very accommodative of making sure the jurors are knowing what's going on and what the process is. And there'll be some initial introductions about the importance of jury service, but also about what the process will be when you're at the courthouse. From there, you'll be called out into particular courtrooms for particular cases where you'll be asked questions by lawyers in those, in those cases. It's changed a little bit, like all businesses and all institutions during the pandemic. The courts have adjusted and a number of them have gone virtual, at least for the initial selection process of jurors. So you get all these people in a room, 120 of your closest friends, as you say, and there's a case and someone's got to pick a jury. As a general matter, how is the actual jury picked out of that pool? Yeah, so what will happen, and again, it will vary jurisdiction by jurisdiction, but what will happen is a subset of those 
jurors from that pool, from that jury room, will be brought into a particular courtroom where a case is being heard by a judge and will be brought into that courtroom. And now, again, depends on a particular jurisdiction, but there'll either be a written juror questionnaire that the jurors will complete, or there'll be a questionnaire that each juror will have. And then the judge might, in the group setting, ask the jurors whether or not they responded yes or no to particular questions on that questionnaire, which then could prompt additional questions on one-on-one with the judge and which will call down that pool that was brought to the courtroom to a smaller number, usually somewhere in the, you know, from say the 50 people who are brought to the courtroom down to 20, 20 or 25. Once that happens, what will generally occur will be voir dire by the attorneys who are in the case and the judge who's in the case. The, the voir dire process really is the process of the individual attorneys on the case. In a criminal case, it'd be the prosecution attorney and, or the prosecutor and the defense attorney asking questions of the particular juror that are more general in nature and not about the particular case. Right. And, you know, you and I both try cases for a living, among other things. So I sometimes have this debate about whether opening or closing statements are more important. And I always say, no, voir dire. For me, voir dire is is a really overlooked and key part of the trial because it's your first chance to connect with these people who are going to be deciding the case. That's exactly right, Rich. I mean, for me, trying a case, the real, especially where there's a jury, is getting that first insight and developing that initial sense of who the jurors on the case are going to be and selecting them. But also that the first words I'm saying to them, the first questions I'm asking them are going to form, necessarily going to form an impression. And it's from that point, you're really trying the case, not the openings or the closings. And you have an opportunity to get to know a little bit more about your jurors that you might be able to bring back or use during the trial. Rich, you mentioned some remote proceedings to pick a jury. Obviously, in the last two years, we've seen a tremendous increase in remote proceedings in the courts. I've done bench trials to a judge over Zoom. I've done numerous oral arguments over Zoom haven't done a jury trial over Zoom. Are you aware of those happening? I'm not aware of them happening. I can imagine the great difficulties that there would be in terms of having a jury trial by doing a jury trial remotely. Just both there are sort of the technical issues of how you're keeping the jurors engaged in the process as both a, a practitioner and attorney, as well as the judge making sure that information in the trial that is supposed to be going to the jurors is going to the jurors and information that is not supposed to be going to the jurors is getting to the jurors. There are just both logistical and practical issues with that that I think are would be very difficult to overcome. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, when you think about what a Zoom would look like with 12 jurors, two alternates, the judge, defense counsel, prosecution counsel, some other court officials, you know, you're talking about a massive Zoom And I think you'd agree with me that it is sometimes a challenge to keep jurors awake and attentive when you're live in a courtroom. Exactly. And I think the presentation that a counsel would have to do to keep both the judge engaged as well as the jurors engaged, I think would be very difficult. And not to mention there, and I have not looked into this, I'm sure in the criminal context in particular, 
there'd be constitutional issues that would be any defense attorney, regardless of the outcome of, you know, if there's a, a guilty verdict, would be pressing at the appellate level. Right. And so I know I have several cases awaiting civil trials in the New York state and federal courts that have been significantly delayed because the resources for jury trials are being used appropriately in the first instance for criminal proceedings. And so civil jury trials in New York, I think, are still at a roadblock. I believe that's the case also at the federal level in New York. So we mentioned these very prominent jury trials that are going on in recent months and right now. Is there anything about the jury's role that has stood out to you during this particular period of time with all these cases? I think with regard to these cases in particular, these these high profile cases, which, you know, have gotten massive amounts of media attention, whether it be the Wall Street Journal coverage of Elizabeth Holmes and the Theranos issue and the the documentary that came out about that prior to the trial, or just with regard to this Justin Smollett thing, just the amount of media attention to that are all things that sort of struck out to me. But in addition to that, the, the videos that were available in a lot of these cases, whether it be the Rittenhouse case, the case involving the killing of Ahmaud Arbery, those types of issues were really saturated within the media. There's no question that it's likely that the jurors who are in these different juror pools were exposed to that at some point. And the thing that struck me about these cases is the response of the defense in a lot of these cases to deal with that by, it appears, having the actual defendants testify for the most part in these cases with, you know, obviously different results depending on the case. If you think about that in all these cases recently, Rittenhouse testified, McMichaels testified about the killing of Arbery, Elizabeth Holmes testified apparently very well, Jesse Smollett testified apparently not so well. So they're making the decision to have them testify and it's having different results depending on how it goes, right? Yeah, exactly. But I think the most interesting thing about that is a recognition by the defense that these people have, there have been images of these people who are making statements or engaging in certain action that I think there's an underlying assumption that the defense believes, defense in those cases believes that the jurors A, are aware of it, and B, want to hear about it from the defendant. Right. And so there's a very interesting interaction here to me because the idea of a jury, I think historically, is that you're supposed to get a group of men and women who have no relationship to the dispute and really who don't know anything about it. You want people who come to the courtroom without any sort of predisposition, right? Exactly. I mean, that's the general assumption of what we've been dealing with since we've had juries in this country. Right. But now that's almost impossible because to find somebody in this day and age with, you know, all the television and all the social media and all the ways to get information who didn't know anything about Kyle Rittenhouse or who didn't know anything about Theranos or even who hadn't heard of Jesse Smollett 
would be very difficult. So it's much more likely now that the jurors know something about the case that they're going to be on. And it's up to the judge to make sure that they still believe they can be fair and impartial, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think it's not necessarily these super high profile cases like we've been discussing today, but it's even cases that are in, you know, a criminal case that's coming out of Newark where there's a lot of local attention to it and a lot of local media attention through things like Patch or whatever it might be that 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 juror pool, by virtue of having a phone and access to the Internet, is going to be able to get at least some information about. And on the flip side... The trials themselves have much more coverage, possibly cameras in the courtroom or audio or at least reporting. And that reporting is going out on a thousand cable channels, on social media. So the stories of what is happening in the trials themselves get to people much more than used to be the case. And do you think that that has something to do with all these defendants taking the stand. I think it definitely does. I think ultimately, again, as I mentioned earlier, it's, I think, an assumption by the defense in these types of cases, and probably more, it'll creep into other cases as well, that other criminal cases, that jurors have a certain level of knowledge of the underlying issues in the case prior to their juror service, and there is a need for them to hear from the defendant to either explain away or discuss what the juror has learned prior to the juror service through these various media outlets. Right. And I think it's also true because those cases are not just being tried to the jury. They're being tried to social media and public opinion. And, you know, we have this belief that in some cases, it's counterproductive to have the defendant take the stand because they'll be subject to cross-examination. And if the evidence against them isn't strong enough to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, it's a mistake to put them on the stand where they can be cross-examined. And that may be good strategy in a trial, but it may be less effective strategy in the court of public opinion. You know what I mean? I totally agree with you on that, Rich. I mean, the Again, the public aspect of these cases in particular is something that the lawyers in those cases are, are trying, again, not just to the jury, but to, you know, to CNN or MSNBC or the New York Post or whoever it might be where there's going to be some coverage of that particular case. And some of these cases have political overtones or connections and that, that too, I think, factors in. Yeah. All right. So, I mean, we could, you and I could probably talk about juries for hours and hours, but I'm not sure the listeners would hang. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your practice and what it is you do as a litigator? Sure, Rich. I'm a litigation partner. I have 20 years of experience. You know, over my, that 20 years, I have experience litigating securities, antitrust, intellectual property, environmental, and other commercial cases. I also routinely advise clients on corporate, regulatory, and criminal matters. I like to say I'm a liberal arts lawyer, and that's how I approach my practice. And I've been at Tartar Krinsky, recently joined, and it's been a great platform to continue to expand and grow my practice. Excellent. And I will say it's been great having you join us. 
Not unlike a trial, we end these episodes with a closing argument. So I'll give you the mic here. What should our listeners take away about jury service and the current role of the jury in American jurisprudence? Thanks, Rich. What I would say is a lot goes in to the jury process, and it's by no means glamorous. Serving as a juror is tough and important work, and at least in my class, half full view of the world, people who are selected take their responsibilities very seriously. I also think that practitioners, given the developments in these most recent high-profile cases, need to reevaluate some of the assumptions that have been made about jurors and how to present cases to jurors that we have, over the years, adopted as gospel. And it also need to be more cognizant of how seriously individuals act when determined to find a person guilty or innocent of a crime. All right, Rich Lamuccio, thank you very much for joining us this week, and thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you again for listening to Law Brief. Now here's something lawyerly, a disclaimer. We are not your lawyers. We do not have an attorney-client relationship, and this podcast does not constitute legal advice. If you need legal advice, you should contact and engage counsel of your own choosing who can best address your own situation and particular needs. You can find more information about our law firm, me, and many of our guests at our website, www.tartarkrinsky.com. We are a mid-size, full-service firm located in New York City and New Jersey. If you want to contact us for any reason, be it comments, topic ideas, or anything else, you can email us at podcast at You can also follow this podcast on iTunes, among other places, and we would very much appreciate it if you rate or review us. I'm Rich Schoenstein, and this was Law Brief. <laughs> <laughs>